Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Publishers is proud to be celebrating 40 years of activist, solutions-oriented publishing. From our roots in non-violent civil disobedience training during the Vietnam War, to today with over 500 books published, some across a dozen languages, we continue to bring positive solutions and cutting-edge ideas to some of the most troubling challenges of our time. Having never wavered from our mission to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, placing planet and people before profit, we are proud to hold the highest environmental and social standards of any publisher in North America. With a dedicated community of change makers and thought leaders, always working ahead of the curve, we look forward to another 40 years of bringing our readers books for a world of change. No matter where in the world you live right now or how this COVID-19 pandemic has affected you, Chances are you're reevaluating many things in your life, especially concerning the resilience of your lifestyle in the face of changes outside of your control. And I'm right there with you. But I've been doing exactly this kind of analysis of resilience and ecological impact for clients for many years. So that's why I've put together a new resource to help people like you who want to start taking steps towards self-sufficiency right now. If you're interested in starting to produce your own food, cut costs while maintaining your health and livelihood, and reconnect with your community to increase your support network, then my new book, Homesteading for Every Home, was written just for you. This book will guide you through simple steps that you can take from any living environment to build resilience in your life and community by taking stock of what you already have to work with, and to leverage it for greater abundance in an uncertain future. Because of how important I believe this information is, I've made it free to download for a limited time. So go to the education tab at AbundantEdge.com to download your copy today and start taking important steps towards a regenerative lifestyle, even in the face of a post-pandemic economy. The more people and communities that work together to create ecological abundance and resilient local economies, the better chance we have to create a new normal that includes the health and well-being of all life. All right, everyone, welcome back to this ongoing series on regenerative agriculture. My guest today is someone who has been an inspiration to me since I first began to study permaculture almost a decade ago. Ramis Kent has been the man behind the scenes for some incredible regeneration projects around the world through his work with the Permaculture Research Institute in places like the Middle East, North and Eastern Africa, and all around the world, especially in places with harsh and challenging climates. Now, though Ramis is someone that I could talk to for days about so many different ecological topics, I reached out to him for this session because of a great article and presentation that he put together for the World Permaculture Association about how machinery can be leveraged for positive environmental impact and why we need to use it wisely to regenerate land at an unprecedented scale. Now, in this episode, we start out by examining the economics of land degradation and how machinery has been a big driver in the ecological devastation that we are experiencing all over the world today and how its misuse has created the conditions for the loss of millions of tons of topsoil every year, as well as massive deforestation. Ramiz then goes on to outline how the same technology can be harnessed to completely reverse these trends by outlining a number of machines and tools that work especially well in specific applications. 
I've also linked the original article that Ramis wrote, which contains a video presentation of even more information and pictures of the machines that he highlights for those of you who struggle to picture some of the things that we talk about here. All of these can be found in the show notes on the website. So with that out of the way, I'll turn things over to Ramis. Hey, Ramis, thanks so much for making time today. How you doing, man? Doing well on yourself. I mean, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm doing well, all things considered. We're all hunkered down at home here. How is things yeah, in cap, England? Cap, cap, captive, oh, yeah, captive audience, captive uh, interviewee, captive everything. So. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't get away if you tried. <laughs> but, there hey, so look, um, I've been following your work for a number of years. Really, you've been an inspiration to me since I got into regenerative uh, fields, everything from farming to natural building. And um, for the folks listening at home, can you tell us a little bit about your background so they can get to know you and, and what kind of work you've been doing over the, hand, the last handful of years? Um, well, you know, my, my formal background is, uh, is actually in um, mechanical engineering. So I, I went to the University of Delaware and um, got, a, got a mechanical engineering degree about 25 years ago, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I, I, you know, worked for a handful of years, um, doing, you know, doing that mostly in, uh, R and D work, um, did some, uh, medical device work, semi-implantables, did a year of, uh, aerospace, kind of aeronautical oriented mechanical design, um, and then sort of got tired of, um, working in an office. And I think the place where I found myself was as far as the work that I, I was involved with, it wasn't necessarily the thing I, I was, um, I had aspired to, you know, when, when, you know, when I first had, had uh, decided to study engineering, it was just something that I kind of fell into and I had an opportunity to actually work on some interesting things, but it wasn't necessarily um, kind of my life's aspiration. Um, but funnily enough, the, the first job I had out of college was, um, I worked for Dean Kamen. Um, he's the guy who invented, uh, the Segway, uh, among other things. But, mm -hmm. um, so I worked for, I worked for Dean before the Segway was released. So I remember seeing, you know, test parts and, and things come out of the machine shop, you know, during the time that I worked for him. So it was like a skunk's work, a skunk works project and, and, and I remember the way, you know, folks were talking about it before it was released, that it was going to change the way that cities were designed. And, and it was that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I, I, I eventually moved to California in the um, mid to late 90s. And, um, and that's, that's ultimately where I discovered, um, you know, several years later, I, I became familiar with permaculture by meeting uh, someone who worked for Jeff and Nadia Lawton. And, um, and then I eventually met the Lawtons. Um, while they were uh, doing a sort of a tour of, of uh, courses and, and talks in Northern California in 2000, summer 2008. And then I eventually went down to go study with them uh, during probably the first to second quarter of 2009. And, and it was during that time that I was in Australia that I, I decided that this was what I wanted to this is what I wanted to do, um, or at least, you know, make an, make an attempt at trying to you know, make it work. Um, where I was able to take my experience, my experiences in engineering, and and combine it with some other interests, and um, you know, and and have it be um, couched in the you know kind of in the structure um, of of permaculture. 
Nice. And so since that introduction into permaculture and starting to make contacts there, tell me about some of the projects that you've become known for and some of the other organizations that you work with now. I don't know about the projects I've been known for. I don't know if <laughs> I'm known for any projects, but I, I've I, known you, you know, for I, your stuff. Your work in Jordan, like you were saying, uh, you're you're starting to to teach on that now, especially the dryland context stuff in North Africa and uh, East Africa as well. Yeah, so so um, I I had a chance to um, become involved with work in Jordan, of course, through my connection to Jeff and Nadia. So you know, I I. I first went there in 2011 for the International Permaculture Convergence, and that was really my my initial foray into the region. So I had a chance to, um, you know, see the the what is now the permaculture. I'm sorry, the uh, greening the desert two site. You know, I first saw it as it was as it was starting to be developed in again in 2011. That's why I first made contact with uh, my friend uh, Murad Al-Khufash in, in Palestine. So I've, I've taught a couple of times in Palestine. That's where I met some of the people who, um, you know, have been working in East Africa, like um, Alex McCausland uh, in Ethiopia. So I've, I've, I've taught there and worked there. Eventually, again, that led to more forays into uh, Somaliland. I've done work uh, in Somaliland on behalf of Lush and uh, and uh, uh, one of their suppliers uh, called Buzz Wellness. Um, I've taught a couple of times in Yemen uh, and, uh, you know, and, and helped to at least begin to get some, some project work on the ground in Yemen and in the Hadhramaut uh, region. I've done consultancy for uh, the uh, Ministry of the Environment in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, the helped out with some of the work that was behind Mazdar City. Um, that Jeff was involved with. Um, he, he got involved with that project in 2009. I was actually on the I was on the farm when he got the call for that project. Um, uh, I, I was uh, involved in helping to get the Shivanch farming project um, that now is is up and running in India. Uh, that was established by the nonprofit organization, uh, the Hans Foundation, uh, and a program called Billions and Change. That that was initiated by. Um, a gentleman named Manoj Bhargav, who's the founder of uh, Five Hour Energy Shot, and mm -hmm. um, and so I I, uh, I had a chance to uh, help get that started with um, uh, uh, my connection to Sh uh, Shan Bhargav, uh, Manoj's son, and um, uh, there's there's you know there's there's some interesting some work some interesting work I had a chance to you know to to participate in uh, the ecosystem restoration camps. Um, that I, I've, I've been involved with that since, well, since before, you know, that, that really became uh, an actual formal, formalized idea. Um, so the Ecosystem Restoration Camps Foundation, you know, um, I'm, I'm on the supervisory board for that project. Uh, I'm probably missing a couple of things, but, um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've had a chance to be, you know, to be involved with some, I think, some interesting, some interesting work. Um, uh, the co-forum, the co-forum uh, dialogue on uh, uh, land and security, um, the, the, the CDLS. Uh, I've been attending that that um, uh, function since, uh, well, since its first year in 2011. That's actually where I met John Liu. And um, in meeting John Liu um, that year, that eventually led to us 
uh, being able to get him connected to Jeff. And then that in turn uh, led to, uh, in part, to the creation of the documentary Green Gold uh, in 2012. Um, uh, See, this is what I like about your work and it's one of the reasons why I've, I've kind of followed what you've done a lot because you kind of, you break the mold as far as people out there with an identity in the permaculture world who have, you know, either a lot of visibility or a big brand or a lot of, you know, videos or educational content out there. You seem to be the guy working behind the scenes in a lot of large projects that are, you know, backed by powerful organizations or well-funded through NGOs or even through governments. And you, you kind of seem to have your finger on the pulse of the projects that are being backed by really legitimate enterprises. And a lot of us sometimes have the, the misconception that permaculture is sort of an underground thing based on where we live. But around those regions that you've worked and that you've just talked about, there's some really legitimate um, I guess, support from governments all the way up to the national level. How have you seen that kind of really trickle down and affect the, the economies and the local people of those areas when it has that kind of legitimacy? Yeah, I mean, well, I think when I got, when I got, when I really decided that this was something I wanted to pursue, I remember the day I left, I left Jeff's place, you know, I, I, you know, I remember the night I left his place to go back to, you know, to head to Brisbane, to head, head back to California. Um, I told him, I said, we're going to start an industry, you know, and, and the whole idea was that, um, I mean, the, the permaculture, permaculture can't remain a, a fringe element. Right. So that my, my whole, my whole, focus but my intent was that uh was to figure out a way to make permaculture quote unquote conventional thinking yeah right so it was just a good way to manage um you know how how land is is um is is uh, designed and organized and how resources are managed and how you know anything and everything that relates to to utilizing some kind of uh, land base, right? You know, which is pretty much any and every economy of you know the world. Yeah, if you um, trace it back, I wanted to. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I, I wanted to see how uh, sort of permaculture or regenerative regenerative design thinking or whatever tag you want to attach to it. I wanted to to figure out a way to um, mainstream it effectively. Um, so that it's no longer seen as being an outlier, and um, and the and whatever way that could be done, and and however that needs to be, um, you know, wh whatever kind of front end presentation it needs to take on in order for the ideas to, to to gain acceptance and to be adopted and implemented, then that's what I wanted to try doing. So, so for example, um, one of the one of the things that we've been able to do. Uh, and again, this is an outgrowth of really Jeff's work in Jordan over the last, you know, 20 years um, was uh, I'm working with a group. Uh, one, one, one is a, a sort of a mentor, um, kind of old, old school OG Permi, uh, John Button from mm. Australia and, uh, and actually a student of mine uh, from Italy, Giuseppe Tallarico. Um, we've collaborated on a, a project uh, that's now um, ongoing. Uh, with the Jordanian Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Planning uh, to set up uh, a couple of uh, research and development sites in the Dead Sea Valley. 
Mm. Um, all of that stuff is is based on what Jeff has been able to demonstrate uh, again in the Dead Sea Valley, uh, and um, and the project actually came out of um, uh, a meeting that um, myself and another colleague of mine, Salah Hamad, uh, you know, we had talked to a group of farm owners from the Dead Sea Valley uh, at a meeting that was held by the Jordanian uh, Jordan Valley Water Authority in 2015. And we had a chance to show them uh, the results of some work that had been done elsewhere in the, uh, in the, in the Middle East uh, in a setting very similar to what you would see in the Dead Sea Valley. And I think they were really taken aback by the results because it was actually something that was done at scale. And I think it demonstrated that the ideas that we were putting forward were actually viable and they could actually work. Um, mm. And I think this was, this was the, I think tipped the really tipped the balance for them, and they they decided this was something that they wanted to pursue. Someone was able to find funding, and um, a, a, a tender was put out um, for uh, you know for a contract to get some folks to design some test plots, and um, and the group that we had uh, put together won. And uh, I remember I was in Spain actually when I found out that. Um, that we won. Uh, Giuseppe, my, my, my former student, was actually the one that, that put it all together. And um, yeah, and that, was, that was actually quite a surprise. That's awesome. But, now look. But, again, but, but, again, but, I, but again, I think it demonstrates the fact that like, this is the kind of thing that we have to be able to, um, you know, to put into place is that eventually, if we can start putting together um, uh, project bids, if we can put together things that are taken on by national governments, by, um, you know, landowner associations, um, you know, th these kinds of institutions, th this is really where we begin to have an effect um, at, at a scale that will begin to change things uh, meaningfully. Nice. Now, look, we've talked a lot about kind of these larger projects that you've worked on and helped to implement. And it kind of all comes back to this thing that actually you and I were talking about the other day, which is land degradation. Like it's one of the root problems that has symptoms that all of us are feeling right now in the form yeah. of, you know, being locked up at home, having to, to distance ourselves socially because of a virus out there. And, you know, this is just one example of a symptom that has its roots back in land degradation. So right. let's go through some of, actually, we're kind of going to go through some of the main topics that you talked about recently in an article and in a webinar that you did with Giuseppe. And we're going to hit some of those points to kind of share them with the audience here, but start it all off by talking a little bit about the economics of land degradation and kind of how it affects from, from a really base level, everything that, that comes off of it as symptoms that we're battling. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote a, I wrote an article for, uh, Giuseppe's um, World Permaculture Association uh, website, um, and and in the article I, I wanted to, and I had been I had written a couple of, of pieces previously um, that had been posted to the Permaculture Research Institute website, you know, probably over the course of the last four or five years, connected to this topic. So um, what I wanted to to highlight was number one. Uh, some of the problems that are that are connected intimately with the phenomenon of land degradation. 
um, such as uh, initially it was talking about drought and flood. And then uh, because I work, uh, I've been working on and off over the last you know, several years in, in, um, in the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region, uh, a lot of the things that we were seeing uh, as it connects, as it relates to regional stability, um, you know, the problem of refugees, armed conflict, all of those things are, again, intimately connected to that phenomenon. So I had, I had written, uh, uh, you know, about how the, and actually done a couple of, you know, podcasts talking about that as well, um, about how land degradation is, is impacting all of those other um, situations. It's not, it's not an accident that you have something like, quote unquote, the Arab Spring, uh, occur uh, during a during a year where um, you have uh, record increases in the price of, of wheat, mostly due to speculation, um, but you also had it uh, during uh, a year where there were mass massive fires um, that were seen in uh, wheat producing regions, and in, in, in particular in 2010 mm -hmm. it was in Russia. So in 2011, you you know you have again the you know the the, the year the the Arab Spring. Um, and the, but then also, um, you know, this this problem of land degradation, I think, is not fully understood in terms of the the size and the scale and the speed at which the problem is expanding. So somewhere around 10 to 12 million hectares of land are lost every year to to degradation. And so. Um, this also has, aside from the, you know, the, the, the regional stability and the, and the food insecurity and the environmental um, uh, impacts um, that I just mentioned, it also has massive impact on, on the economy. So um, if you look at some of the UN numbers, um, some of the estimates have the impacts of land degradation upwards of 10% of annual GDP lost due to land degradation because you lose the ecosystem services that are associated with um, landscapes that are actually functional, functionally intact. And, and, and now we're, we're seeing, especially with something like the coronavirus um, issue, which is also connected to uh, land degradation, um, the impacts are massive. I mean, so uh, trillions of dollars are being lost. Tens of trillions of dollars are being lost uh, because of our inability to be able to uh, manage landscapes in the way that they should be. Uh, and, and again, valuing this is, is, is something that is going to need to be taken seriously going forward. So aside, so, you know, one of the, one of the graphics I've interestingly enough put up earlier today um, was, was actually produced by, it was put together by the, the United Nations Environment Program, Environment Program. And it was making the, the, it was highlighting the fact that most of the viruses, for instance, that we've been seeing in recent years um, are zoonotic in origin, meaning they come from animals, right? So uh, something like 60% of all the infectious diseases in humans, right, are, are from, are, they emanate or originate in animals, right? 75% of all emerging infectious diseases, right, are, they, they actually have uh, origins from uh, zoonotic uh, uh, viruses, animal uh, viruses that are associated with with animals, mm -hmm. be they animals in the wild, um, and probably more importantly, animals that actually are are domesticated, uh, and that we see a lot in um, conventional industrial agriculture. And there's a there's a great book written by a, um, a 
uh, evolutionary biologist named uh, Robert Wallace, I think that's his name, um, called uh, Big Big Farms Make Big Flu. Mm -hmm. And so he, he, you know, documents how, um, you know, all, all of these things are, again, intimately connected. I mean, one of the, one of the other books that I've really been a, 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 a huge fan of and um, an advocate of is James C. Scott's book. He's a professor at Yale. Uh, it's a book called Against the Grain, uh, a deep history of, uh, uh, yeah, deep history of the earliest states. And he talks about how um, many of the common uh, diseases that are associated, you know, with human history uh, didn't really become prominent until after the establishment of um, agriculture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, you would have, again, this, this um, what he calls the domists in this aggregation of all these different animals and life forms. Uh, you also have aggregated all of the illnesses and the, and, the, and, and the pathogens that are connected to those life forms. And so now you have all of these things that are in close contact. It's going to increase the, you know, the, the incidence of, uh, you know, the likelihood that, that you're going to be transmitting those, you know, those illnesses. And this is exactly what we're seeing with, you know, with coronavirus. I mean, coronaviruses have been, have been known, you know, they've been identified, for, you know, for, for several years. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you can see a lot of articles that are written about this with the increasing destruction of, you know, wild habitat, which is going to increase the contact that, you know, that people have with, um, you know, with uh, different types of wildlife, that, that what's going to happen is you will see more and more of, of the illnesses that are associated with those, those life forms that are going to eventually result in some of those things being transmitted or transferred. And I mean, it just seems so, logical so when you if, think if about going, it, yeah. just because, you know, yeah. anything with a degraded immune system, which usually comes from not getting the nutrition, the shelter, uh, or, you know, whatever it is for you to live a healthy lifestyle, whether it's animals or humans, given that we're all connected in this, this chain, it's going to start to affect everything that's connected to it. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we're not eating very well, mostly because of the degraded landscapes that create for unhealthy plants that feed into unhealthy diets that feed into, you know, unhealthy humans. And as far back as you can trace it, it all ends up back in taking care of the land from which everything else emanates. Yeah. And, and I think the, the other thing, again, we were touching on this yesterday as well when we first spoke. I, 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 I was just mentioning that there was another... Um, piece that I just written, again, trying to make more of these connections. One of the, one of the other problems that, that has also uh, emerged um, coincidentally with the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic is um, locust swarms. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I had, a, I, I, yeah, so I had a chance to actually see one of these um, emerging swarms, like the, the, the beginning stages um, while I was in Somaliland a few years ago, I was in a valley up, up near the northern coast of Somaliland that was completely covered for as far as your eye could see um, with these like uh, kind of bright, kind of fluorescent yellow green juvenile locusts. Um, it was before they really had formed wings and were capable of flying. And they completely were covering this valley. And uh, interestingly enough, I think the UN has a number of stations in, in that part of Africa looking out 
for, you know, for, you know, for these very events. And one of the things that I had recently come to discover in, in doing a little research is um, locusts, when they, when they swarm and they, and they, you know, they overtake a place, um, they favor areas that have, uh, that, that are, that are degraded. Uh, because the vegetation there is, is, it's the type of vegetation that, well, number one, they're capable of eating and that, and that they favor. So I've, I've come to, I've seen in, in some research papers that apparently uh, you have, uh, you know, these, these, a number of species of locusts and grasshoppers uh, like to eat vegetation that is um, nitrogen deficient, for one, and has more carbohydrates than protein. And, and these are areas that, again, are typically going to be degraded. Many of them are going to be areas that have been overgrazed. So they, they don't, and, and this, is actually, this actually feeds into um, another topic that, that um, was, that is, that's in this new article, um, is trophobiosis, right? So this is trophobiosis theory that says that um, pests cannot eat healthy plants because there's nothing made available for them to eat, right? So the only way that a pest can eat is, is if there's a weak plant that is sort of putting off these exudates, these, you know, amino acids and, and simple sugars that they're, they're capable of, uh, of actually eating. And, and a healthy plant does not make that available. So what you'll find is that when you do have these heavy uh infestations of pests and things like locusts uh they're just a diagnostic right for an area um that has plants that are suffering from being in uh, a, a landscape that's not capable of providing them with the, with the nutrition that they need in order to be healthy mm -hmm. so again this is another indication that this is this is uh uh another reason to to take up this um, earth repair agenda, as, as I call it, um, seriously, and to, re and to really uh, have it be expanded and, and funded and, uh, and employed. Well, so let's focus now on how so many of the landscapes around the world, but like especially grasslands and what we've used in the past as arable land for farming, has become so degraded and what role machinery has played in that process. Yeah, so... Um, and again, this is this is what's what's in the the, the my earth repair upscaled piece from uh, where write this. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to this so people can check this out in detail and see all the links and the images you put in there. Okay, great. Yeah, so I, I think I wrote it like a, maybe a year, year and a half ago, something like that. So, um, so you know, heavy heavy equipment. I mean, it's like any like any tool. Uh, if if the tool isn't used well. If it's not employed in the right way, it can do a lot of damage. Um, you can take the same tool, if, and if it's used, um, you know, much more intelligently, uh, it could it could produce a, a great deal of benefit. the The problem with uh, the use of a lot of heavy machinery, uh, say in you know conventional ag or industrial ag, is that uh, you, you know one of the main one of the the big issues with degraded landscapes um, is compaction. So areas that you have um, heavy use of, uh, you know, heavy machinery, big tractors, big trucks, uh, continual, continual use of, of um, 
you know, agricultural in implements that are disrupting, uh, you know, the, the structure of soils and the, and the health of soils is that uh, they, they are prone to compaction. And so if you have problems with compaction, then, then it's very difficult for vegetation to be able to establish. Um, you can't get air and you can't get uh, water to the, the depths that would allow for uh, the roots of plants to take them up so they can actually continue to be healthy. And then once, once, that, is, is, once that process is set into motion, coupled with the use of um, you know, agricultural chemicals that, you know, that, are, that are effectively you know, they're toxins, um, which actually set into motion this whole trophobiosis uh, 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 problem, this phenomenon. Um, all of those things, com you know, compounds and, and accelerates the, the degradation of these landscapes. And, and if you look at the, the, the historical um, uh, uh, sort of logical progression of civilizational collapse, for instance, if you read books like um, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail to Succeed by, by J.R. Diamond, or you read um, uh, other books that, that, that are looking at the same topic, the, the sort of the logical progression of, of the degradation of landscapes is the deforestation and habitat destruction, which then uh, gives way to soil problems, which include salinization, uh, loss of fertility, and soil erosion. And then that in turn gives way to water management problems. Right, so this is sort of the historical progression that we've seen happen repeatedly in many places around the world. Well, with the advent of, uh, and, the, and the availability and the access to the technologies that we have now, where we, we're just seeing the same process, the same progression in multiple places around the world, and, and it just simply accelerates in size and speed uh, and, and scale. Yeah, especially because some of the landscapes where this has been implemented on mass are, are much more brittle than others. And it only takes a couple of seasons or a couple of rotations of damage like this. And it sends it kind of on this downward spiral that's really hard to, to come back from if you don't know how to uh, kind of recharge or, or regenerate the landscape. And with that, like, so since machinery has mostly been used at this point for such destructive forces on the land, Give me some examples of how machines can be a positive force when used correctly. Well, I mean, this is where, um, you know, if, if, if you look at Jeff's work, for instance, and there, and there are other folks, you can, you can look at the work of people like Dan Darty, you know, with the, with the, with the key line design, uh, Jeff's work using earth movers, you know, to, to do um, work with, you know, swales and, and water harvesting uh, infrastructure, uh, David Spicer. Um, there are a lot of people who have, have been doing different variations of the same theme, where you have uh, very kind of selectively um, employed uses, uh, very intelligently employed uses of of uh, machinery and, and, and implements to actually create a condition to where you can improve the, the, the functioning and the, uh, of, of these landscapes. I mean, so there's everything from, uh, again, Jeff's use of earth movers, for example. So um, excavators and, and bulldozers and scrapers and, and those kinds of pieces of equipment. Then you have things like the, the you know, the key line uh, plow, subsoilers, um, spaders, rotary spaders, articulating spaders. Uh, there's a tool that I'm particularly fond of called a, a pasture aerator, um, which you'll see used in, um, in different parts of the world in particular. Big old teeth on the roller, yeah? 
Yeah, yeah. So you'll see that used in, in places like Mexico, like in many of the semi-arid areas of Mexico, um, where uh, pasture is being um, kind of reconditioned uh, so that it's it can be uh, made uh, functional for the, the, the grazing of the cattle. Uh, land, um, land imprinters, um, the, like the Dixon imprinter, um, the Valerani plow, which you'll see, uh, which, which comes from, from Italy. All of, all of these are, uh, they're examples of pieces of, of equipment and machinery that can be used to, to scale up the, uh, the recovery of, of many of the parts of the globe that have, um, that fallen into a degraded state. I mean, in fact, the matter is, you're not going to do this by hand and be able to match the speed that this problem is, is spreading. You're just not going to get that many people to work together that fast, given, uh, given how fast, you know, how quickly this problem is expanding. So if you, if you break down that number, 10 to 12 uh, million hectares of land that goes into a degrading, a degraded condition every year, um, that's 33,000 hectares a day. So, thir so 33,000 hectares a day are falling into basically what is a, a dysfunctional, like non-productive um, state uh, to where, again, all of the ecosystem services that we would, uh, that we rely on to make life on this planet possible, um, those, those services are increasingly not available for us to make, uh, to, to, to avail ourselves the use of. So um, how do you fix that? Well, it's going to have to employ the use of technologies, but they have to be used in a very particular way. Right. And if we don't, and if, and if we're not, you know, um, if we're not thinking in this, in this manner, um, that we, we can't afford to demonize uh, machines, you know, we're not Luddites, we shouldn't be sort of Luddites, uh, and people that, that uh, you know, completely throw out the, you know, the idea of, or the potential uh, or the possibility of using machinery, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's machinery, it's mechanized, or it's fossil fuel powered, you know, it, it, it's the, it's all in it. The key is how do you use the technology? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's just like, I, I, I use this, this example in my class all the time. Um, you could, you know, a screwdriver it was made to put in a screw, right. But you can take the same tool. And if you, if this is your intention, you can make the same tool. You can turn it into a weapon. You could, you could hurt somebody. So, but the problem is that the screwdriver, the, the problem is the person who has decided to use the screwdriver in a manner that is uh, destructive mm -hmm, and endangering mm -hmm. the well-being of, of other people. So, so if you can just change the way that you think about how you use tools, um, how you employ them, then you can actually come, you can come up with a very different outcome. So you've given me a lot of examples now of kind of attachments and tools that can be uh, put onto mostly tractors at this point and used directly on the land. Are there any other technologies or tools that you really recommend as accelerators for regenerative projects like this? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so a lot of it is going to be, um, you know, scale dependent, right? So if you, if you use it, if you're on a, you know, a relatively small, um, you know, a relatively small piece of land, you know, obviously you know, hand tools are, are great, you know, things like, um, you know, Maddox or um, this, uh, 
there's a company called, uh, they make this thing called a Rogue, Rogue Ho, which is actually, they make actually very, very good tools. Um, broad forks, uh, you know, th those kinds of uh, pieces of equipment and then using those, using those things to put in, you know, uh, water harvesting infrastructure to do soil conditioning. Uh, probably one of my favorite tools um, are, the, are the two wheel tractors, you know, that, that are made by companies like BCS and Grio mm -hmm. um, or Grillo depending on how you, you, you pronounce it. There's a company in Kentucky in the States called Earth Tools that, that sells all this equipment. I think those tools are, I think in terms of bang for the buck, um, they're great because you can do a lot of really, uh, really good thorough work um, using, you know, a, a, a small engine powered uh, a tool. And um, and I think for the for the work that you can do and the time that you're able to do it, and again at the scale you're able to do it for for the money that you spend, um, it's I think it's a great return on investment. So you know th these are the kinds of things that that um that I like to to mention or at least bring to the attention of people. And um, and again it's it's all in how you choose to use the tool. Um, I think tools like shredders and chippers are are indispensable and being able to uh, speed up and scale up, uh, you know, obviously the, the production of things like, like compost, um, you know, if you have wind row turners, um, th these are the kinds of things that we're gonna need to have access to uh, if we're going to uh, accelerate the, the spread of this earth repair agenda that, um, you know, that, that, that we've been talking about. Well, so let's talk now specifically about dry land ecosystems that you have so much experience with. What are some of the tools and machinery that you've seen be very effective in those applications? Well, I, th I think some of the things that we had mentioned, that we just mentioned uh, uh, before, uh, you know, when you go to a lot of places, the, 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 I mean, the, the, typically you're going to find some kind of earth moving equipment like a, like a, like a dozer or an excavator. You can find those um, pretty pretty much anywhere and everywhere. You have access to tractors, but you don't necessarily have um, access to the types of attachments that you know that I that I just spoken about. Um, so, you know, it, it, again, it's it's all in how the 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 tool is put to use. So, you know, so for example, pro probably one of the you know the better examples that that I could point to is is again. <clears throat> the 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 there's a again a project in a in the Middle East that kind of was the proof that convinced um, the 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 folks that started the Shivanch uh, farming project in India uh, they were able to actually see um, the the potential to have the, this kind of work done at scale. Uh, Jeff had taught uh, some uh, a group of. Uh, personnel from the Iranian Ministry of Agriculture. This is probably going back 12 years, uh, 12 or 13 years. Um, he just he basically taught them a, you know, a, a, a permaculture design certification course. And then out of that course, they took the, what they had learned um, in the portion where we you know, talking about soils and, and, and techniques and strategies to improve soils. They, they took the, you know, the recipe that they were given for make it a Berkeley compost and they just simply scaled it up. And, um, and they, they had this amazing result over, 
I believe the test area was 12,000 acres, 12 and a half thousand acres was 5,000 hectares. And they got some, they got spectacular results, spectacular results simply by employing uh, at scale, you know, this, this compost, uh, this composting uh, program uh, that was just a matter of employing uh, or making use of, uh, 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 again, a, a hot composting or thermophilic composting process um, with, a, with, a, with a, just a really well laid out recipe. And they, they were able to do this at scale even, on site or was it a matter of doing it in large batches and then dispersing it? Well, well, I think what was amazing was they were able to organize uh, trainings for farmers um, across a number of, of uh, in a number of different places within the region that, again, that the, uh, the program was implemented, which was in the forest province, which, which borders um, the Persian Gulf. So because, you know, they are, you know, they're subject to sanctions, you know, from a number, by a number of countries, um, they, they don't necessarily have the benefit of being able to get certain products into the country. So all they were doing was using crop wastes in a, in a, partic- in a way that allowed for them to be able to make, um, make their own fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, they got, this, they got this, this great result. And what I think what's amazing is they got increases in their agricultural output um, while also significantly reducing uh, their water use, like in some cases by, you know, by two thirds. I mean, that's huge able to get like for an area that gets such yeah, small three. rainfall. Exactly. And I think, that, again, this was the thing that, that in, in being able to show what kinds of results that, that they were able to, to generate, again, over such a large area, this is what I think gave people uh, a lot of confidence. In where they, and this is what convinced them that, oh, this is something that, that actually is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we had, um, and when we had shown the, you know, the, the, the folks who started the, the Chevanche Fertilizer, uh, uh, the Chevanche Farming, quote unquote, Chevanche Farming uh, uh, project, uh, again, these were the results that convinced them. And, they, and they've simply replicated what they saw. Wow. And I mean, in their case, they began with an area that was um, one hectare. It was a one hectare um, pilot project farm. And uh, I think they were able to actually get that farm established in 10 months. Uh, a colleague of mine went, a couple of colleagues of mine went, went and um, actually helped them uh, put, put that site together. And they went from, within a year, they went from 50 farmers from 50 farms that came to uh, train at that site. And within a year, they went to somewhere between 50 to 90,000 farmers that were actually adopting the, 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 what they saw on the, on the test site. That's incredible. So, so, you know, three orders of magnitude, you know, and three orders of magnitude increase within a year is um you know is is that's that's a significant increase very encouraging you know, think, again it it, it 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 demonstrates the viability of these ideas now and i think it's also significant that you know the the project that this that this was um that this was started by that the the, the folks who actually started this project i mean manoj bhargav is a, is a billionaire you know a five-hour energy shot um <laughs> i think they they captured, uh, they got like 90% of the U.S. market for uh, the, um, like energy, the, the energy shot market. So um, to his credit, to Manoj's credit, um, they've, they've taken 
that money and he's dedicated like something like 99 percent of 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 his money to philanthropic ventures um this is one of the ventures that he's that he's uh financed and again it, i think it 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 more than demonstrates the viability of these ideas uh, to be scaled up that's fantastic and so with that in mind what kind of resources and and where would you point listeners at this point to go and check out examples like this or maybe even find more specific information that they could make work in their context or use to kind of train up and implement some of these things for themselves well i i think um again i would i would encourage people to go look up look up shivanch farming if they will google a google search of shivanch farming s h i v a n s h um that's a again that's a perfect example mm -hmm. of of how you would want to structure a project um uh the ecosystem restoration camps foundation um which which essentially uh, was attempting uh to replicate um jeff and nadia lawton's master plan demonstration site uh idea that mm -hmm. pri put together several years ago um that's another good project that's another good good um uh project example to look up um although there's there's still some work to be done but but again i think the 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 idea behind the project is sound um common land foundation is another great resource common land has has been working very hard a, a gentleman named Willem Forwerda, who um, I, I had a chance to to um first meet several years ago and had and, and done done some work in in preparing some material uh with him uh, to to demonstrate the link between the interest of business and the interest of people that are concerned about you know environmental and ecological health, like where can you find the common ground to where you can actually see these communities work together, right? To 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 expand uh, this 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 kind of work and actually show that it can be economically viable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what else? Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I mean, those those are three places that I would begin. Those are three places I would begin because um, I think what they've done is they provided templates, they provided frameworks to to show how you can actually do this for real. You know, it's not we're not talking about you know hypotheticals. We're not talking about abstraction. We're not talking about uh, theoretically how this might be done. No, these people are doing it, and um, and I think we need more examples. Uh, uh, that that can demonstrate how do you scale up these kinds of efforts? Right? Absolutely. So, so this is this is what I would uh, I would recommend. This is what I would recommend folks to you know to, to to start looking if they if they are intent on pursuing um, you know similar similar kinds of work or, or getting started uh, similar kinds of efforts. Fantastic. Well, I'm not sure if by the time this interview comes out, we'll have launched the training through ecosystem restoration camps, which you're teaching a module. I've got a module coming out. There's a whole bunch of really talented people in this group that are, you know, at the, the top of their fields, very specific information to start really making a difference on these types of regenerative projects. I'm really excited to be collaborating with. Yeah. I mean, I, I think again, hopefully, There'll, there'll be more of this kind of thing being made available. Uh, but I think what's probably more important is that uh, we, we, we start to see more investment and, and more serious uh, financial support, um, you know, being, being put into the work, you know. So um, it's a serious problem. 
uh, it's going to increasingly be a, be you know be a serious problem, uh, and it and it requires serious investment and serious support, and um, and hopefully we'll we'll begin to see that uh, in short order. Fantastic. Well, look, Ramis, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again. I'm really glad that we were able to go through this information and really kind of break it down in this way. You mentioned a ton of resources here today. I'll make sure to put as many as I can in the show notes for this. And for the people who are listening, who are having trouble like visualizing some of the tools and the, the machinery that you mentioned, I'll link to that article and that webinar that you did with Giuseppe so that they can see all of the, the videos and the visual links that really help to make this easier to understand. Great. I, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, talk more in the not too distant future. And um, hopefully I, I'll see you one of these day, in one of these days uh, on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, people meet in, in person again, that'll be really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, what a so, concept. So well, yeah, I'm really looking forward to meeting you whenever we do get the chance. But uh, until then, we'll definitely stay in touch. Um, you take care, man. Stay healthy. I, I shall. All right, man. Take Be care, buddy. You too. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.